Welcome to King Size, a Stephen King podcast for obsessives by obsessives. With Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. another podcast uh today to talk about misery how are you doing my friend i'm very well thank you yes indeed i'm thinking of renaming myself as simon buster balkan just like the cop in the film i seem to be reading these books just about everywhere brilliant buster you know what what, what police work are you going to do well i'm going to buy eight novels and and read them um while whilst everything else is going on i'm just going to take most of the movie to, to read the novels this is detective work it is detective work um but i'm sure his deputy would much rather he not be reading books in bed and uh, returning her uh, attentions <laughs> but uh yeah so hey, amazing while, while we're doing this podcast you are my podcast mate you are you are not anything else okay so we went that funny business <laughs> Well, it's a good job we're working virtually. Otherwise, of course, my hand would be on your knee. And uh, But metaphorically, I, I reach out across the airwaves and place it there. Do you remember when, when, you, first, uh, when you first read it or, or, or saw the film? I know I first read the book in 2007. Um, and I know that because the book I read and reread was A Gift from Your Good Self. And uh, I would have been on tour at the time. Um, all over the UK with an open air performance of um, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, and it would have kept me um, engaged and entertained all that summer. I can't remember when I saw the film for the first time. Interesting. I think I, I definitely read the book first. I remember seeing the film, uh, you, you know, not not that long after I'd, I'd read the book. Um, but again, my first introduction to it was was the written word. And I read it during uh, a cold snap as well. So it was really, really appropriate, uh, very much fitted with, with with the environment and and the conditions as well. Um, I think that was the only thing I had in common with it. Luckily, I wasn't um, tied prisoner to a bed with a psychotic uh, <laughs> capital. It was just the weather. And I love King's story about um, how he came to, to write Misery, which is that he, uh, he, he attributed it initially to a, a dream he had. Uh, on a transatlantic flight uh, to London. And he, he fleshed out some of the characters and the situation um, and scribbled uh, down some musings when he woke up from this dream on a napkin. Yeah, and he wrote on the napkin, uh, a big woman and solid all through. She's an absence of hiatus. Absence of hiatus. What a fascinating phrase. What? Yeah, yeah. An absence of hiatus. Yeah. Crikey. 
absolutely and that was just his first you know that was his first musings on it and um and then how he that night when he got to london the story goes that you know he checked into to the hotel and just wrote in a in a white heat you know some some of those opening ideas of of, of what of what the story would be um and i was fascinated to to learn that he originally planned for for annie to get paul to to write his book um and that then the book would be bound in paul sheldon's skin yeah and I think this is when he was thinking it was going to be a Batman book, potentially that that uh-huh. darker that darker side. Uh, and then, as he said, Paul Sheldon turned out to be a good deal more resourceful than I initially thought. Yeah, absolutely. I, re- I remember him saying that. Yeah, that uh, the book was going to be bound in skin that Annie had flayed off um, of Paul Sheldon, and that's that's a deeply gruesome and unpleasant process um very medieval um but yes. if Annie had done it I think that was going to be called the Annie Wilkes edition did you know very much about the sort of environment that he wrote those opening um pages of M- misery in R- remind me he had this transatlantic flight and he'd had this this dream as you say on the on the plane and the rest of the family had pretty much conked out so when they got to London he was completely wired um, and, and because of the time difference, he, w- he was completely awake. And Tabitha and the two kids, they they, they crashed out. Um, so he went down to the hotel foyer and said, if you've if you got somewhere I can write, because he didn't want to write in the room. And the manager said, oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, we, we, we've got somewhere. Please, please come, come and sit and you must write at this desk. Yeah. This, this was Rudyard Kipling's desk. Oh, well, no, right. I know. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. I don't think I could. I don't, I don't think I could. No, no, please. Absolutely. You must have this desk. So he sat and, as you say, he wrote furiously. Yeah, and yeah. They brought him tea and they brought him cakes. <laughs> and after he sort of um, that moment had, had passed um, and he was going to leave it for a while, he was going to leave. And then the hotel manager comes back and says, oh, by the way, we didn't we didn't tell you, did we? Richard Kipling, he died at that desk. <laughs> right okay well i'm glad i didn't know that beforehand oh brilliant how, how appropriate though how, bri- how, yes, how yes. brilliantly king right <laughs> absolutely i love the well i'm not sure i believe in the in the concept of coincidence but yeah, that's yeah. just yeah a wonderful thing so little detail I love that image of, you know, that he he had an idea for it, like the Annie Wilkes edition, as we mentioned. And then these characters started to take on a, a different shape, behave in a different way, which then affected the the way that he, he wrote it. And I think it's very easy, isn't it, to think, well, Annie Wilkes, psychopath, crazy. That's it. Let's just write her off. And again, Stephen King said about her, she may seem psychopathic to us. But it's important to remember that she, that she seems perfectly sane and reasonable to herself. Heroic, in fact, a beleaguered woman trying to survive in a hostile world filled with cockadoody brats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, to reference Seven, when, you know, they're talking about who this John Doe character is, it's, you know, it's very similar. Um, Brad Pitt's um, character David Mills is saying, ah, he's a lunatic, look at him. 
And some say it's, it's dismissive to call him a lunatic. Don't yes. make that mistake. So th these people, they have to be able to function in the outside world. And that's what Annie does. They might think that she's a little eccentric, perhaps a little bad tempered. But if she seems that crazy all the time, yeah. she's not going to last very long. She's certainly not going to be able to maintain the farm in the way that she does. So there has to be some level at which... Um, people who are this disturbed can still function and that's what makes them terrifying and the, and the film shows that as well in particular mm. that first almost 30 minutes or so if you didn't know the story if you hadn't read the novel you know the misdirection in that first half an hour you're this what a, what a lovely lady okay she's yeah. um you know she's got some uh, eccentricities but then haven't we all but you know god if you're gonna flip your car and end up, you know, kind of in a terrible state, this is the person you'd want to rescue you. She's quite clearly very capable physically, as you, you know, as would match the description you just read. Yeah. Um, and there are numerous references in the book about how easily she's able to sort of pick him up and put him down on the bed or yeah. move him from the bed to the, to the chair. And she, it's not just the technique of doing it, which all yeah. nurses and medics have, it's the physical strength that she has. Um, she is very well, I mean, Kathy Bates was perfectly cast. Yes. You know, from the physical aspect beyond but yeah. she looks the part. She absolutely looks like you would imagine Annie to look. Co completely. It, and and it, it does boil back to what King scribbled on that napkin, you know, yeah. that sense of a, a, a solid woman, an absence of hiatus. There is, you know, just a, such a fantastic turn of phrase there. Uh, and I think he said, I, I don't quite know what I meant, but but he he, he did. It was there. That mm. kind of informs that character, almost that idea of this solidity. There is there's no getting around her. You know, she is solid. She's present. She takes up that space. Just like Don John Doe, actually. She's very methodical. She's very exacting. Yeah. You know, she knows that Paul has been out of his room predominantly from the fact that the penguin is now facing in the opposite direction. And yes. that's it. That's all she needs to yeah. know, that yeah. somebody has disturbed it and the only person it could possibly have been is him. Yeah, absolutely. And then in the book, we have that she lays some of her hairs uh, across some of the um, you know, some of the cupboards. And so she's, she's mapped it all out. Absolutely methodical. Um, mm. And yeah, dismiss her at, at your peril. I mean, I remember the book, you know, I mean, St Stephen King wrote it um, between 84 and 86 and it came out in, in 87. Part of it as well was a, a response to the vitriol almost of um, Eyes of the Dragon. So in um, 1984, when Eyes of the Dragon came out, that was, you know, you know King, um, you know, delving more into a fantasy uh, realm. And the reaction at the time of a lot of the fans was, well, hang on, this isn't what you write. This is what you do. No, 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 no. You, you stick in your lane because this is what this is what we know you for. You write horror. And Misery was in some ways a, a response to that. And again, we'll talk about it in more depth about that relationship between artist and, and, and public and writer and fan. But this incredulity of well, you, this isn't how you write. And that sense of you stay within this parameter and I really love the fact that within the writing and the bite of that book, 
There mm. is a definite two fingers raised up <laughs> <laughs> to those people that were saying, no, 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 we choose how you write. Um, a direct response to that in, I think, one of his sharpest, most finely edited books. There, there's no uh, fat on this book. Mm. It's re it's really lean. I mean, it you know comes in 320 pages. It, it, it you, You're in right from the beginning. There, there's no wastage at all. It's it's mm. it's all killer, no filler. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing to note. Um, and we may have to keep renoting it because it's, as I say, I think it's important. When um, Stephen King's second novel was about to be published, there were a couple of uh, possibilities as to what it could be. Yeah. Um, and it turned out being Salem's Lot. Yes is obviously a story about vampires um and i think his editor at the time released publisher said look if you if you bring out salem's lot after carrie you're going to get a reputation for being a horror writer and if there's one thing i've heard him say several times over the years at different talks and in different interviews he says you know if people want to call me a horror writer they can call me a horror writer if people want to call me a suspense writer they can call me a suspense writer so long as they don't call me late for dinner <laughs> I, I don't think I don't, I, he doesn't he doesn't sit in he doesn't want to sit in any, in any genre i don't think he yeah, he, he cares about that. He just cares about telling stories. Uh, absolutely. He did a lovely little um, section on Desert Island Discs from many years ago mm. when he says that his toes curl when he gets introduced as the, the horror maestro <sighs> or the yeah. horror. Yeah. Uh, he's like, I'm not the maestro. I, I, I'm not a horror writer. I, I, I'm a writer. And yeah. And I think throughout the expanse of his career, he's certainly shown that he can handle any genre. And what strikes me is, obviously without ever knowing the man or speaking to the man, but knowing him through his writing is, it seems that he writes um, not with that agenda of, this will be a horror book. Now I'm going to write a time travel book. Now I'm going to write a fantasy book. Now I'm going to write an emotional book. He writes a book filled with characters and they take us in different directions. Mm. And I have this sense that it's not this cold-blooded, plotted, right, now I must try my hand at this. Or it, it's, it's a freer sense than that. And it's often the critics or the public or the fans that want to pigeonhole it. And the writing's more um, creative than that, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think he's talked about, I can't remember which author it was, it might be John Fowles, um, but somebody works in a completely different way and they write the end sentence or the end of the book yeah. before they start writing. Yes. And that's a terrible idea. I would never do that. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going to, to pan out yeah. when I start. All I know is how I'm going to, it is, is the, the essential kernel of the idea. Yeah. That's where I start and, 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 I, and, I go, and I go from there. And there's a wonderful detail um, in, the, in the story when Annie Wilkes gives Paul a notepad, okay? To start, you know, to, to note down some, some ideas. And again, in interviews, Stephen King has been asked whether or not he does the same thing. Do you carry around a notepad so you can write down ideas when you get them? 
And his reply has always been, I think a notepad is the best way to immortalise bad ideas. <laughs> Not how I work at all. Not how I work at all. I'll have an idea and I might run with it and then I might leave it for yeah. ages. Um, he had the idea to write <laughs> 11 in the 70s. That's right, yeah. And he just didn't feel he was able yet to capture what he wanted to capture and yeah. on reading that book and i really look forward to doing a pod on that one mm. i'm very glad he waited because the book he delivered is for me it's 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 quite quite sublime i think it's a perfect book it's um, a beautiful story but it's not a horror story no it's it's it's, it's a love story it's a it love is. story yeah. Um, it says it's a sentimental book, as you say, it's a love story. It's kind of a detective book as yeah, well. Yeah, it's shifting with those wonderful concepts of the time travel and, you know, that butterfly effect. My God, if you could go back and change this one moment, then the ripple effect that would have. Um, it, it's, it's such a cleverly beautiful book. And, and yeah, potentially back uh, when he started writing, he might not have um, had, you know, the ability to get that down on, on the page quite as much um certainly you know back then there'd be a lot more drugs running through the system to uh <laughs> that, that might have possibly might have possibly clouded but it's interesting side because misery came out after it mm. so mm. you know, this huge doorstopper of a book and then misery that was a lot more um a, a lot more taught you know, in its size. And King said, um, you get all this freedom and it can lead to self-indulgence. I've been down that road, most notably with the Tommyknockers, uh -huh. but with a book like Misery, the results were good. And obviously the Tommyknockers came out after um, Misery and Tommyknockers then was that book that then led to the family intervention, you know, mm -hmm. of, you know, led by Tabitha of, look, we need to have a chat about what you're consuming and um yeah by king's admission the first time it really overtly bled through into the writing um and considering that misery came in the middle of a period when he was taking a lot of drugs my god the writing on it is is so muscular yes absolutely and as you say it's muscular but it's economic yeah um and i remember starting to reread Misery um, and being very surprised at the opening, probably because, um, at least for one reason, I, I remember the film so well. And I remember how the film starts. Yes. Um, but the book starts with Paul tied to the bed. Yeah. There's none of that um, having, he, having his accident, Annie rescuing him. It starts with him tied to the bed. And I'm like, how on earth? Are you going to keep this going for another 320 odd pages? Yeah. Because you've started here. There's no yeah. there's no introduction. Yeah. We really did hit the ground running, didn't we? I'd forgotten yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's great, isn't it? You you know, those narrative jump techniques that he does that, you know, he, he'll tell the backstory, but as and when. But right from that opening, it opens with that sound, doesn't it? Just hearing, mm. hearing Annie say, you know, number one fan. But in through through his damaged, you know, state, he's almost like he's hearing a slurred message and you're in right from the beginning. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
and, and then the book expects you to keep up. And mm. it's a great example for me of show don't tell. Mm. I don't mm. need to do a lot of exposition here. I'm going to go straight into the heart of it and we're going to move at pace. And I know you're going to keep up because you're smart enough. Um, yeah, so, it doesn't move that fast. Yeah, yeah. So it hits the ground running, but it doesn't run off at a, at a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly, exactly. It's um, I, and what I love, it's it's you know, some people have said it's a it's a love letter or a hate letter to the fans, and actually, um, you know, fans there were reports that when they read Misery, you know, they found this savage dissection of the dark side of fandom and were, were really annoyed at King. And uh, he's like, oh God, you know, like Tabitha, you know, wrote a couple of pieces in the Castle Rock uh, fans, fanzine, you know, the King fanzine, mm -hmm. reminding fans that they neither knew their favourite author nor owned a piece of him. Good point. Well, I might be, I, I might be wrong. Um, I'm happy to be corrected on this point, but as far as I can remember, it's the first time that he's used the phrase that um, he uses to reference his fans. Um, and it's fairly early on in the uh, in the book. Um, and Annie is talking about you know, him, about Paul writing mm -hmm. Misery's Return. Um, and one of the reasons Paul says he can't do it, he says, I don't have my concordance with me. Because well, what, what's your what's your concordance? Well, that's all the you know all those books of reference that I have, so I don't have to remember various characters, events, and all the other things that have happened in the yeah. in the Midway canon. Um, and he saw she was barely listening. This was the second time she'd not such not shown the slightest interest in a trick of the trade that would have held a class of would-be writers spellbound. The reason he thought was simplicity itself. Annie Wilkes was the perfect audience, a woman who loved stories without having the slightest interest in mechanics of making them. She, she was the embodiment of that Victorian archetype, constant reader. I don't remember, I don't remember reading that before. And I don't remember him actually saying it, using that phrase in the context of a book. Later, ugh, late, he, does, um, he does use it one more, at least one more time um, later in the, in the story. She's given him the opening chapter or so of Misery's Return Back and says, you've got to rewrite it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, he had once thought of her as the perfect audience. Oh, boy. I have to give you credit, Paul. When you make a mistake, you go whole hog. Constant reader had just become merciless editor. Her sense of injustice really comes to the forefront. And she relates to him about the, uh, the chapter plays. Yes. When she was when she was a child and going to the cinema and talking about um, the, the Rocket Man chapter play in particular. Yeah. And then, of course, as the car goes off the cliff and then they reveal that he managed to roll out the car, even though he was bound and there was not a hope in hell. And it's her sense of just pure injustice of where she screams at him. He didn't get out of the cock -a doody car. It's not right. It's a cheat. And that ownership and that sense of as an audience member, hang on, I've got a right here. You're not going to pull the wool over my eyes. Yeah. And that sense of injustice. I think it's when she's almost her most human. I can relate. It took me straight back to, um, 
I'd probably say the last couple of uh, seasons of watching Lost uh, uh-huh. for me, for me personally, where you've dedicated hundreds of hours and a great amount of enjoyment. Don't get me wrong from it. And a great amount of escapism. But ostensibly, you're going, well, hang on a minute. What's don't let the ending be the thing I think it is that you promised us it wasn't right from the first episode and oh oh come on <laughs> real I could have what I could have done during those hours and that sense of injustice that you know we have a right to feel when we think hang on you've just you've played those cards you've you not in the right way you've yeah uh, you pulled a fast one over us and I love that bit with Annie and I and I really relate to that it's, it's such a human aspect again she you know we're all diamonds aren't we we have so many different sides that we show and it's her showing for me possibly one of her most human sides in that moment well I have to admit I might be showing my age a little bit here but <laughs> I have a feeling I can remember exactly the serials that Annie is referring to, because I think they used to show them on telly. Yeah. Um, and I think it was called, it was either called The Rocket Man or King of the Rocket Men, something like that. But it was exactly that. It was a, it was a serial. It was in black and white. It ran for, for ages. And at the end of every, every chapter, um, there would be something that happened to him that was supposed to be a, a, a cliffhanger. Um, and then you'd see the next episode the following night or something. You didn't have to wait a week back in days of 80s television. Um, <laughs> and then, yes, you'd see him do something like like roll out of, of the car when he quite plainly hadn't done that yeah. at the end end of the last episode. So I'm, you know, loath as I am to admit it, I'm with Annie on this one. I'm like, you tricked me. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's that moment, isn't it, of Paul going, oh, God, look, I'll write anything. She's she's so into misery. She'll be just happy to get this. And it's a great moment of dismiss her at your peril. Yeah. Uh, you can't do that because she's like, no, 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 no. This is not right. <laughs> Even in that brilliant moment in the film where she talks about uh, the chapter plays and he goes cliffhangers. She's like, yeah, I know that, Mr. Smarty Man. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> and I think she says along the lines of, I might be slow, but I'm not stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's very, she's very intelligent in her own way. Yeah. Uh, you know, in that, in that sense of, um, you can't fool her with a cheap trick yeah. like that. You're going to have to, you're going to have to outsmart her. Yeah. That's what you're going to have to do. Um, and that's her, you know, that's her um, objection to those opening chapters of Misery's Return is that it's, um, it's just not, it's, it's just not fair. It's just not right. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to make scientific sense mm. but if you can believe in it if she can if she can believe in it to a certain degree then she's happy more than happy in fact so when annie discovers that you know uh, misery has died um and paul is trying to just placate her and say well look, you know it's uh, a lot of people died during that time it's almost not take ownership for it and she 
absolutely pins him down on this point. She says, but characters in stories do not just slip away. God takes us when he thinks it's time. And a writer is God to the people in a story. He made them up just like God made us up. And no one can get hold of God to make him explain. All right. OK. But as far as misery goes, I'll tell you one thing, you dirty bird. I'll tell you that God just happens to have a couple of broken legs and God just happens to be in my house eating my food. Yeah. (laughs) It's just that moment of no, you take responsibility for this. So you take responsibility for this. You don't then palm me off with a second rate explanation for it. Mm. That idea of the writer being God. And I definitely read Stephen King leeching through into you know Stephen King effectively being Paul Sheldon there. That's his thoughts on it. But in this case, that the God is no longer omnipotent or omniscient because Annie is the one with the power. And Annie is the one that knows him better than he almost knows himself. She knows all his tricks, all his habits. And you just realize you are up against the most formidable formidable foe and this is before any of the physical violence has taken place yes i think that's almost more terrifying actually and and, and is more dangerous because she talks this is the you know again um we're relating to um another uh, another theme in that somebody is more than happy to talk about responsibility and they're more than happy to talk about um god but the rules don't seem to apply to them. Yeah. So when Annie is um, on trial, and this is very nicely used in the in the film, particularly, she says, "You know, there is a higher authority than man, and I will be judged by him." Now that's all very well, well and good, but you don't you don't behave in line with that philosophy. Yeah. Because you're deferring all of your responsibility to somebody else you know it's the it's the you know somebody else made me do it yeah and again there is nothing one of the most terrifying things is some maniac who thinks they're right with god i'm you know i'm god's instrument the lord works in mysterious ways all that and everything and i you're just you you're just using that as a get out of jail free card aren't you and you know you are but there's no telling you that because you have this this absolute certainty yeah. in your in your behavior Annie and absolutely Annie does it yeah but you know she's not prepared to let Paul have the benefits of the same philosophy if it doesn't suit her and we've seen in in, in other books in the mist mother Carmody, yes. what yes. how she embodies that uh religious fervor uh, and the the damage that does I think that dedication uh, that blind dedication is what is 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 dangerous something that's not open to investigation or query or questioning in annie's case i think her her religion is the misery books because they say you know she says they saved me in a in, in a sense that those you know this these these stories helped me through an exceedingly bad time mm-hmm. And you can see, you can, well, at the very least, and I think it's important to help give everything credibility, you can understand if somebody is that invested yeah. in, in a work of fiction like this, how, 
how devastated they're going to be when that character dies. It's going to be genuinely traumatic. The power of writing, the power of art, that it, it can save you in personal circumstances. So I, I love that side to the story and how it, you know, really gives Annie, enhances that human edge because we go, mm. yeah, I can relate to that. The books that I've read by, by this man himself, by Stephen King that have really, you know, saved me a lot mm. throughout my life and have been there as a constant companion and given me great comfort uh, and great enjoyment. And yeah, I, I think with that, this part of me that feels, well, I, I do have a sense of ownership. You know, I feel very protective over Stephen King and his books. Yeah, I remember, I think um, it was C.S. Lewis who said this um, when he said, um, why do we read? We read to remind ourselves that we are not alone. Now, it's okay, you can find great mm. comfort, kinship, um, emotional support in art, yeah. in films, in, in books, in paintings. And again, if somebody has taken that away from you, um, with no understanding of what the artist's reasoning for that is, um, you're going to feel really hurt. It's going to feel like somebody killed a friend of yours. So we've got, the stakes are so, so high there. Um, some of the writing side, I just want to dive in and mm -hmm. just look at some of King's writing, you know, outside of the the, the, the misery uh, return books that we'll, we'll, we'll look at as well. The actual style of writing there, the, the imagery um, that we open up with that broken off piling on the sand at Revere Beach when Paul's coming out of his and, and, and coming out of his unconsciousness and that image of the tide washing in and out. So when the pain is numbed by the painkillers, the high tide rises up over the piling. And when the pain is full, the tide's washed out and that piling is exposed. Yeah. And, and he says the pills were the tide, Annie Wilkes, a lunar presence. Yes. Such a powerful image of, of uh, almost a, a tooth imagery. That's what I get with it. Yeah, that idea of, you know, the tooth being numbed with with painkiller, with the anaesthetic, but then when that rubs off, you know, that, that gum is sore and that tooth just juts out. Yes, it's, uh, again, it's, it, it's an image you can relate to. Yeah. It's very simply painted in that respect. So you can, you can just see it straight away. Yeah. Uh, or more to the point, I think, feel it. It's a very clever knack to be able to just plug your audience into yeah. what's going on in the in the character's mind and how they're feeling mm -hmm. and actually the pain that they're experiencing one of the images i loved was is uh, the way he describes the typewriter because it feels like another character to me the way it's done with this 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 thing with its its grinning machine and it's as as the story goes on and some of the the keys get broken it's got like bad teeth constantly grinning at him he writes um about the royal typewriter a steel return lever dull with disuse jutted to one side like a hitchhiker's thumb was it grinning it already looked like trouble 
And the N is missing. It says like a missing molar in a mouthful of teeth. Ah, oh, and, and he takes that even further when yeah, he personifies that typewriter and says, mute and thick and full of words he did not want to write, grinning with its one missing tooth. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a malevolent presence, this lifeline that he needs to be able to almost befriend Mm. To, to help him make his escape it's such a thing of malevolence that he just hates <laughs> yes and it, and it, it, it's the clack 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 noise it makes as well yeah. it's not, it's not even writing on a you know a nice little word processor which i think stephen king tended to to, to write on it's this old fashioned nick, nick, clack, 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 typewriter yeah, just but... the sound of the thing is like torture yeah, and with a missing, yeah, with a missing N. Yeah. It's just the annoyance of that. And then later on, it spits out its T. And, and then the E, the most used letter in, the, in language. And you just go, oh, give me a break. Come on. Yeah. You could have at least, you know, I don't want to be ungrateful, Annie, but you could have got me a typewriter that works. Yeah. Um, and on yeah. the cover of my book, Sire. Yes. Read it in a hardback uh, copy. Um, one of the beautiful Hodder BAC editions and the picture of the typewriter. It's got that personification of it's got almost the eyes at the top and the keys. Oh, yeah. Are, the keys are teeth. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I see what you mean now. With, yeah, well, yeah. It does look, well, it looks like a, it really, it looks like some sort of bad tempered bull, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Like a bad tempered bull. It's got that sense like Christine has of that, that personification, that malevolence. Mm -hmm. And, and, and Stephen King does that throughout misery. So he talks about even the ride on lawnmower that we know does serve a purpose when uh, it meets, um, uh, meets flesh of the policeman, the monotonous snarl of the riding lawnmower as if it's mm -hmm. human and then when Paul escapes from his room for the first time and he sees the phone and Stephen King writes about the phone being castrated, you know, because it doesn't oh, have yes, the power line. Yes, yes, in that respect, yes. Uh, yeah, so all of the sense that within Annie's house, you, you get the sense that she has this power over these objects. Some of the, some of the writing that he has in the descriptions of the physical interactions between Paul and Annie are really shocking. So he mentions about being raped back into life by the woman's stinking breath. Oh yeah. That's really nasty. <laughs> At the end of the book, Paul Sheldon is described within really nasty rape revenge fantasy where he talks about here's your book annie he panted his hand closed on more paper this bunch was out dripping wet smelling sourly of spilt wine she bucked and writhed under him i'm gonna rape you all right annie i'm gonna rape you because all i can do is the worst i can do so suck my book suck my book suck on it until you choke this sense of, and, and I know when we talk about the film, Rob Reiner's, you know, mentioned about that final fight scene very much mimicking, um, you know, that the physicality of the love of lovemaking. 
Mm. And it's this physicality between Paul Sheldon and Annie throughout the book. As you said, she's big, she's strong. She moves him. He's utterly dependent on her. There's a lot of physicality between them. Her fingers pushing something into his mouth, shockingly intimate, dirtily welcome. It's, it's a very, it's a really physical book. It's all about from his crushed, battered, destroyed legs to obviously the hobbling, the ankling scene, the thumb. It's all about the body. And I think King even writes about Paul being tired of giving up pieces of himself to Annie. There are plenty of passages that are, are, are very disturbing yeah. in a sense. The, the one detail that, um, that really struck me in that physical vein, so to speak, is, again, this is one of the distinctions between the film and the book um, in that he, Paul Sheldon loses one foot and a thumb <laughs> in the, in Stephen King's book in the, in the, in the film um, she, and he breaks both of his ankles very, very brutally with a sledgehammer, but she yeah. doesn't cut, cut anything yeah. of him off. Yeah. But he loses a, Left thumb, and I'm left-handed, by the way. And that's, but you know, she cuts it off with a with an electric kitchen knife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to carve your thumb here, Paul. Yes. Oh, yuck. Well, yeah. For having for having the temerity to, um, you know, mention about some of the the, the end missing. Yes, it, that's what sparks it. And on that point, um. He does the brilliant yeah, narrative jump technique. So I remember reading it going, hang on, missing thumb. I can't remember that yes. taking place. Yes. I don't, did I, I miss a bit? Yeah. What, 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 what? It's, it's that perfect example of show, don't tell. Uh-huh. It, it's like King going, I'll get back to that and I'll fill in that detail. Uh, but right now, um, let's just crack on and let's move with it. And also from Paul's point of view, this sense of after what happens with the ankle scene almost like the thumb scene he's like well hey i i'll mention it but it's no biggie <laughs> because considering the, the litany of crimes that have been done against me by annie wilkes this one's not even a biggie and then yeah. in the book she she then brings him a cake and puts it there in the middle amongst the candles and i it's such a gleefully nasty bit of writing that could easily go, you know what? We could edit that out. And he's like, no, that's staying in because uh, I'm, I'm having that one. <laughs> it's so yeah. nasty. Yeah. The thumb feels like um, almost an aside. Yeah. My first read it. It's like, but I had the same reaction. I was like, did I miss something? I'm sure I would have remembered something like that happening. I can't have been that tired when I was reading this. Surely. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to read that again. No, no, he definitely says he lost a thumb. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and on that, Paul's reaction to it, where he's, um, I, I mean, it's very funny. There is a lot of the book that I'd love to get your thoughts on about, because I think it's incredibly funny. There's a lot of dark comedy. And, and Paul Sheldon says on that, well, think how much worse it could have been. It could have been his penis, for instance. And I only have one of those, he said, and began to laugh wildly in the empty room in front of the hateful royal with its gap-toothed grin. 
I, you know, he's going, well, hey, I guess look on the bright side. It could have been worse. Again, one of the things I think is terrifying about Annie is how childlike she is in a lot of her behaviour and a lot of the things that she says and in a lot of the way she reasons things. She's very emotionally unsophisticated. And I think one of the, one of the things that demonstrates it is the fact that she wants this book She's interested in the end product and she has absolutely no interest in the process that's yeah. used to make it. Yeah. Absolutely none. She's not interested in the nuances or the sophistication of that. She just wants her book. She just wants misery. Um, yeah. And it's really childlike. Um, and it's very difficult, I believe, although I've not had, fortunately, not had much experience of this, trying to reason with an adult with that kind of thinking yeah. because they, they, they're done with their sort of development in that respect yeah. so it's going to be really hard to try and persuade them to see any other other way of, of thinking about it when Paul is talking to Annie about fast cars and she's you know she's reading the first few chapters and she says well I don't really like it you know all the all the cussing do we have to have all that? It says, well, that's the environment that I came from. That's how people talk. Mm, just, no, do, no, do you what? think I go and say this to the person who's going to sell me food? I want some of the effing that and the bastarding this. And well, no, that's not the point I'm making. You don't because you don't live yeah. in um, in a in a in a city in a kind of um, dangerous urban environment. But people who live in the slums. Talk like that. That's, I'm telling you the yeah. truth. It, it raises that point about Annie's language. So, so that that moment is we're about twenty pages in before that first incident in the book w with the soup, where they're talking about mm -hmm. the swearing in fast cars, and and Stephen King writes her face now like a sky which might spawn tornadoes, and. You, it's that first moment where it really kicks off and in the book a real nasty moment where once she's cleaned up the mess with the spilt soup she then shoves the dish rag into into paul sheldon's mouth and Anne is I mean, in the film her response to that that brilliant use of the word christing <laughs> um and what I find so sinister is her lack of swearing. So the, the cock-a-doody medication, dirty bird, ooginess, heavens to Betsy, fiddle-dee-voof. That for me, that lack of being able to swear, I, I find deeply unsettling. Um, yeah. In the same way, I, uh, someone I, I, I used to know who, um, was very very strong in their uh, almost evangelical in their religious views okay. and didn't like swearing which absolutely fine great no worries but would substitute the f word for flip so okay. it was like oh for flip's sake oh flipping heck i i i found that more nails down a chalkboard than than swearing <laughs> and, you know, because you're just ah like, oh, just come on <laughs> do it just do it and with her, it's the fact that's such a pain point. And mm. it's so sinister, the language. Again, to your point of that childlike language. Yes. Mm. It's like, well, if you can't swear, um, why can't you swear? Yeah. What's that about? Yeah. Um, 
why is that such a problem for you? And it's 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 a complete um, confusion, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you 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 can't drop the f bomb, but you can mutilate somebody. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Huh? But I didn't swear. I might. No, you didn't. No, I'll give you that. I'll I give might. You that. I, I might have put an extra candle on the cake that actually was his thumb, but I didn't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay. Oh well, in that case, you're fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah in, fine. Into paradise, you come. <laughs> it's just uh, what. <laughs> One moment that really made me laugh um, <laughs> was when it's a, 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 at the end of the um, toward towards the, the end of the story. Um, when she wants him to tell uh, her the end, you know the, yeah. the 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 last the last the last few last few chapters. Annie was not the waiting type. Annie would have watched all twenty episodes uh, in one night, even if they gave her eye strain and a splitting headache. Talking about the Rocket Man, because Annie loved sweet things. I can't do that, he said. Her face had darkened at once, but there hadn't been a shadowy relief there as well. Oh, why not? Because you you wouldn't respect me in the morning. He thought, he, he thought of saying, but, and clamped down on that, clamped down hard. Why can't you tell me the ending? Because you wouldn't respect me in the morning. No. <laughs> yes. No, if I do that, I might lose another body part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because she caught her, after she's cut his foot off, Mm. she cauterizes it doesn't she so she has to blowtorch it as well that's right and it's hinted at it's never explicitly stated but it's clearly hinted that he potentially might have died after that cutting off of the foot and the cauterizing yeah because we know early on he nearly did die nearly overdosed um, mm. when when she was, you know, he, she had him on the drip. And there's the sense that after the ankle being chopped off and the cauterizing, that he nearly didn't quite make it. But again, he proved more resourceful than King ever thought he was initially going to be. Yes, he's quite, he's a, although he has his moments of despair mm. and of c- contemplating giving giving up, yeah. he's a fighter, you know, in, in, in a perverse sort of way this experience for paul although you know misery doesn't have a have a sequel i don't know well i don't know if he need he needed it in a very odd way or or not because he'd already written fast cars so he'd broken away from from misery the thing is the book that he writes under this pressure uh, under this pressure although he would never wanted to write it write anything to do with misery ever again he keeps it's a really good book as 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 misery novels go it's actually one of the it's it's a really really good book so at the end i think he doesn't destroy it as he does in the film Mm, that's right tricks annie he just keeps you know a couple of pages to make her think yeah that's what he's um he's he's burning but he actually wants to keep this thing yeah yeah whereas in the film he's quite happy to just pull quite happy to destroy it it's interesting the balance because in in the film he's 
not uh, doesn't have his ankle chopped off. Mm. Um, uh, and Rob Reiner said, well, that's because we wanted him to emerge victorious. So obviously has, has the hobbling scene. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly a nice second choice, but no. <laughs> there was definitely a sense of we want him to emerge victorious. But with that, he then goes on and doesn't do Misery's Return. Whereas in the book, I find the book so much darker and nastier, mm. especially mm. towards him, that it felt like almost he needed to have something of a win, which for me is the fact that once he escapes the horror, he does have actually this book that might be, well, we know immediately it will be a bestseller. And even if that pays for his recuperation and hospital bills and recovery, if that book then becomes an international bestseller and he's able to sell that rather than maybe talk about his own experiences for a bit, give him some breathing space um, and allow him to recover, you think at least let him have that. <laughs> and it's a little moment of redemption for him. At least he's able to escape from this horror with something that will help him move forward. Yeah, I agree. I think I think I found of the two tellings, I found the book decidedly more brutal. It's somewhat because I think Rob Reiner wanted to shy away from some of the, the violence. He didn't want to make that brutal a film. Yeah. Um, I know I, I, I believe he found the, the hobbling scene quite difficult to film. Yeah. Um, for his own his own. Uh, sake as it were it's not something which is you know it's encouraging i'm glad to know there is one less person in the world who is not comfortable with extreme violence on other people that's actually quite yeah encouraging in a way yes absolutely um, we'll, we'll take that because yeah and he said he found the end scene very difficult to do uh, the fight scene mm. which as we've spoken about earlier in the book it's explicit there this is paul getting his revenge in this sexual way this physical payback uh, and ryan has said he really struggled with with, with that you know it was a yeah. really nasty nasty scene to have to shoot for him personally but it's such an intimate story yeah um i mean there is a real perverse intimacy that develops between annie and paul yeah. um and that you know neither of them can really do anything about about it in the sense that it's just something that happens. I mean, obviously Annie is the, the main instigator of it, but that there is something that's really intimate between the two of them. And I think that is expressed at least in one way towards the end of the book when um, the police are starting to come around and there's a part of Paul that doesn't want the police to catch Annie because he wants to kill her himself. I want to take care of you. I've been, yeah. I don't want somebody else to do it. This privilege belongs to me because I've been through yeah. all of this. I should at least be the one who gets to be your dispatcher or, get, or at least get a chance to be your yes. executioner. Yeah. This, is between, this is between you and me, this. Yeah. I read that just going, call out, call out. They're there. They're the other side of the door. They walk right up to the door. And he's just, yeah, this, this is mine. This has to be mine. Mm. sense of he's still keeping his his Paul Sheldon this his pride mm. his dignity got he's lost so much physically and emotionally but he needs for me for him to have a chance to ever make it past this and for this not to destroy him and kill him 
he needs to be the person to put Annie down. Mm. Yeah, it's a big deal for him. To your point about it being a very, you know, there's a physical relation between them. There's a love relationship. You know, she says, you know, I, I love you. I love your mind. And then, as we know in the film, she admits, you know, she's fallen in love with all of him. Um, and and he, know, he knows that he needs to be able to use that love as a currency to be able to get him out of there alive. Mm. And it is that fascinating theme that Stephen King really addresses about the Scheherazade theme. Am I the only one that had to ask Google how to actually say that (laughs) word? You are are so not, no. And you're not (laughs) the only one. I remember going, I read it. And I read it a couple of times. I went, of course, I know what that means. And then I was like, hang on, what what exactly? It's one of those phrases I know, and I know what what it means, but I didn't know the actual, you know, uh, bones of it. Um, So what are the bones? Because in all truth, I never got my head around this. Yeah, so this is, um, so she, Scheherazade is a, a major female character in Middle Eastern collection of stories called a thousand and one nights right and it's a story where uh the the king discovers that his first wife uh was unfaithful to him so he then resolves to marry a, a new virgin every day and have her beheaded in the morning before she gets the chance to dishonor him when it is scheherazade's turn yes what she does is on that evening the first evening she starts to tell him a story. Uh-huh. Okay. So she starts to tell him a story. And then just as she gets to the, you know, the really juicy bit, the cliffhanger, if we like. Uh, yeah. She says, I've got to stop. It, it's dawn is approaching. You know, night's finished. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you, you can't do that. She said, well, I've got to stop now. So he's like, okay, well, you, you can stay another day. So the following night, she tells him the end of that story mm. and then starts on a second story and again stops. And before you know it, uh, uh, a thousand odd nights have gone by. And by the end of that, he f- has fallen madly in love with her. She mm. saved herself and they then, you know, marry. Um, and so it is through the power of storytelling that she's able to save herself keep her life and through his sheer oh come on it's the gotter and stephen king talks about it in in misery yes the gotter the gotter what's the gotter what's got to happen next i gotta find out what happens oh come on i gotta know what happens next yeah as we know it's you know every time i watch something on netflix and even though you know it's late and you gotta go to bed and of course other streaming platforms are available um but anything online and then you just see in the bottom box the next episode's gearing up two or three seconds you go i I just gotta i've just gotta gotta. watch the first (laughs) bit um and so that's the scheherazade theme And, and he talks about um stephen king said paul sheldon's efforts to play scheherazade and save his life gave me a chance to say some things about the redemptive power of writing that i had long felt but never articulated this is his only way out through his writing. And the little tagline on the front of my book says, uh, Paul Sheldon used to write for a living. Now he's writing to stay alive. 
I think that was the tagline that was used for the book, and I think for the film as I well. Think the film, yeah, it exactly sums up his situation. Although there's one thing, there's one 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 question I had, which I think the film addressed a little more clearly for me than the the book, in that it's exactly how Annie was in the right place at the right time. I didn't get a, a, a strong sense of, of that. I just kind of, I just kind of went with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just thought, but whereas in the, in the film, I think it's clearer to me that he's stalking him. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, it's a he real. Knows that he stays at this place all yeah. the time. Um, to write the, write the books, and yeah, she's been stalking him. Yeah, she sees. I I I, I watch the lights in your window, and then when you turn it off after you finish writing, uh, <laughs> you what? know, what? you you're ha what? what? <laughs> yeah. Um. So she's been watching him, and then she has kind of lucked out in the sense that you know had a drink before he hit the road, and the weather was just appalling. Um. So she's been watching him and probably following him. What, what, what I love about that is the sense of this big, solid woman, both in the writing and how, how she's portrayed. There's, there's a nimbleness as well. Mm. Fleet of foot, this sense of she's been watching. I've been watching. I've been watching you, Paul. Mm. I know you, I know you're not asleep, boy. <laughs> oh, um, I know you're not asleep in there, Paul. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> And there's just, it's that moment, J Jimmy Khan's face, where he kind of goes, oh, okay, that's uh, not a bit weird. And yeah, it's, it's that sense of, yeah, it's definitely explained in the film more than, more than in the book. Um, yeah, in, in the book, I just kind of went with it. I thought, well, that was a mighty coincidence. A, a moment I want to talk about, Cy, just um, yeah, before we maybe shift in a bit and look at the movie is, again, that moment in the writing where <laughs> she talks to him about, before she does the ankle scene um, or, uh, and she says, I'm just, you know, give you a pre-op shot. And then there's a few more lines of dialogue. And then when he goes back, pre-op, yeah. hey, did you just, yeah. did you just <laughs> say, <laughs> and again, it's, it's mirrored in the, the thumb moment where we go, hang on, what is it? What, what just happened? Mm. And there's some lovely moments in the book of that, where you just go, hang on a minute. Did I just read that? Again, they're almost like an aside. They're, yeah. done, they're sort of done very sort of casually. Yeah, yes. Because, again, in her mind, this is just a procedure. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a medic, it's just a, just a procedure that we're, that we're doing. We do this yeah. all the time. Yeah. Your pre-op shot is perfectly normal. Exactly. And the brilliant line that she has that isn't mirrored fully in the film, which is, trust me, I'm... I'm a trained nurse. I know I laughed aloud at that. I know my wife did. She was reading this yes. in bed and absolutely howled out loud at that moment. It's intentionally darkly, brilliantly comic. Uh, I think in the film I'm writing saying, she says, oh, trust me, it's for the best. The image of her taking out almost the trash, which is his foot, the toes were still wiggling. Mm. And he can see... And there's a beautiful moment of detail where he talks about he can see the scar that is on the instep. So, you know, this, ah. this, this piece of Paul Sheldon that she just takes out <laughs> after cutting off from him and he can see a scar on it. I, I thought that was such an emotional moment of writing. 
Mm. It's just one sentence, but you just everything you just think, where you know, how old was he when he got that scar? What was that memory like? Was that when he was a kid? Was he out riding his bike? Was he out climbing trees? And suddenly all of that just poof, gone, she chops that off and takes it away. And and this section that actually my my wife pointed out to me when she read it, she found this really, really powerful mm. about. Paul Sheldon, you know, he, he remembers, he says he remembers getting into the car, remember waking up here, everything else is a blank. Why wasn't he able to just forget the image of the axe rising and falling, the image of her? It was all so clear. He's like, why can't I have had almost a, an emotional reaction where I forget all of that? After that horrific loss of the ankle, the loss of my limb, why am I still remembering it so much? Mm. And and she, he writes, because writers remember everything Paul especially the hurts strip a writer to the buff point to the scars and he'll tell you the story of each small one from the big ones you get novels not amnesia mm. little talent is a nice thing to have if you want to be a writer but the only real requirement is that ability to remember the story of every scar I think the devil's in the detail after he's had his um uh, his foot cut off in the in the book, and Annie's cauterizing it. Paul screamed as fire splashed over the raw and bleeding stump. Smoke drifted up. It smelled sweet. He and his first wife had honeymooned on Maui. There had been a luau. This smell reminded him of the smell of the pig when they brought it out of the pit where it had cooked all day. Just that little detail of that particular remembrance, and the fact that it's related to his honeymoon, I think is... And it kind of smells sickly sweet. There were a couple of other details that um, that jumped out. Again, they're almost like little asides. I love spotting things like this in in some of the writing. I you know I, I feel quite clever when I spotted them. But obviously, <laughs> everybody, yeah. everybody to notice. Um, I think Annie's talking about one of the other people that have been her guests uh, over the years. He said he was going to Sidewinder. He said he'd gotten an, an assignment. From a magazine in New York. He was going to go up to the old hotel and ske sketch the ruins. His pictures were going to be with an article they were doing. It was a famous old hotel called The Overlook. Lovely. I like that. But, oh, nice. Yes. Let's, yes, uh, lovely. Just, just, just quietly talk about the mention uh, The Overlook. Yes. People will know it, um, what the, the significance of that building in Stephen King's canon, I'm sure, but also in Misery's Return. Because that's another inter very interesting element that obviously you get in the book, but not the film, is you get to read some of these excerpts that Paul has been writing. This is when they're in Africa. Now the bees covered her in a thick and moving blanket. Her eyes, open but unseeing, seemed to be receding into a living cave of crawling, stumbling, droning bees. <sighs> I'm sorry, but that just makes that just makes my flesh crawl. It's a skin crawler, isn't it? And, and the, I don't know how people do that. There are people out there in the, you know the whole the world record for I don't know the greatest number of bees they've been covered in, or the amount of time, or something like that. And I'm like, no, no, you're clearly yeah. insane. Well, you've seen me, Sai, um, when I'm around. Uh, not so much. A, well. Bees, I don't mind, but a wasp or any, I, you, you've seen how quick I run and how, how much of a flapper I am when it comes to that. So uh, yeah, anything remotely like that, I, I just, like you, skin starts to crawl. Um, 
and the Africa theme, I think, is a really beautiful image as well, because Paul Sheldon talks about when he remembers, again, that power of so much of the book is about memory. Mm -hmm. And he remembers when he was a child going to Boston Zoo and seeing that beautiful bird from Africa that was kept in a cage. Mm -hmm. And he really relates to that sense of being this trapped animal. Such a powerful moment when he throws that ashtray out the window when yes. first cop arrives and he throws it out to get his attention to make that bid for freedom and the very first word that he shouts out it, it's not help help he shouts out africa 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 help me help me africa just this sense of how damaged he is you know, it's almost like he's not able to find the words for him. Africa, you must know what that means. Everyone, yeah. got to, you know, that image of Africa that permeates through both the the novel he's writing, Misery's Return, and what it means to to him being held captive. Yeah, he's nearly gone. Yeah, that, you know that's one of the yes exciting aspects of the the story is seeing the yeah. feeling the hero come almost right to the brink and then finding their way back um, to actually fight this rather than give up. Because there, there I think that's described a bit in the, in the book as to how he could do that, that, you know, there are, he'd be almost content to, to finish, to, to finish the book, then let um, Annie shoot him and then shoot herself. Yeah. Yeah. It would feel like, it would feel like a, an end because it would also feel like a release of course yeah yeah um and when you get to that again you get to that point of desperacy um where you feel you would take a bullet rather than face the reality of what comes next well we've we've discussed that before haven't we that sort of predicament characters pushed to the edge sometimes pushed over and that theme that runs through of what what would I do in the situation? Again, mm. I read this book and think, I can't help but think, if I was trapped on that bed, what would I do? Would I have that foresight of mind to play the whole Scheherazade thing that he does to keep her on side? Um, would I try and make a break for freedom quickly? Would I have thrown that ashtray out to, which ultimately dooms that, that cop to die a horrific Nasty, oh. nasty death, which I think we've got to we got to have a little talk about. Um, at the end, I, I think you know when the, the 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 other two cops come back, I'd have been I wouldn't have been able to help myself from shouting out for help again. Putting your taking ordinary people, putting them in extraordinary situations that naturally mm. make the reader reflect. What would I do if I was there as well? So we'd be playing um, Matt Robinson. Can you? <laughs> well, I know one of, one of the first things that occurred to me when I was going to, before I started rereading Misery, actually, was, um, and, and, and don't go broadcasting this, but... Um, <laughs> we, we are recording and, and hopefully we might have a, a few couple of listeners by now. <laughs> well, you, you lot don't, don't go... Don't go broadcasting this. Um, <laughs> I uh, I actually felt more of a perverse um, kinship with Annie rather than Paul 
for one for one reason about putting myself putting myself in that in both situations both situations yeah, yeah. but maybe Annie's first and foremost because I thought to myself well you know under what circumstances imaginary as they may be might you indulge in that so who have you got tied to your bed Simon Frank Darabont what's he doing he's rewriting the ending to the mist he's crashed outside the house I've managed to salvage him and his, um, his handwritten screenplay to the mist. And oh, I'm a huge fan of yours. I love this. Can I read this, please? I'll go on then, Simon. You are changing this ending, Mr. Man. <laughs> this cock duty ending. You are changing that ending. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, if at any stage Mr. Tarabont is... Um, is disappears and uh, you know cannot be traced anywhere then um yeah we might need to look at no further than my yeah. colleague simon balkan I, I might be one of the first people you have to eliminate from your, from your inquiries your inquiries yeah <laughs> however you might have a fair following of people going yeah no you're doing the right thing <laughs> okay you're doing the right noble thing Thank you. Just Thank make you. the world a happier place. Yes, yes a more hopeful place. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, that cop death, uh, I mean, oh, the, again, in the book, so nasty when, you know, she gets that cross and like a vampire just pierces that cop's flesh taking great delight a number of times in the crotch area and the death yeah. is so lingering and then the ride on lawnmower that as you mentioned oh. you know, he describes as snarling with annie wilkes <laughs> maniacally covered in blood on that lawnmower riding and yeah i mean it's such um a low point of the book for paul it's like oh god well there goes salvation and there goes another life with it and and then what he's afraid of the retribution then that she will wreak mm. upon him for doing that um and of course she blames him for the cop's death yeah yeah it's your fault you made me do it yeah exactly i was cleaning i was again as with everything paul i was cleaning up your mess you made me, you made me spill the soup because of your incessant swearing. You've done all this. Paul, I know you've been out. I know you've been through my stuff. So look, I'm just cleaning house here, okay? Yeah. It's yeah. again... It's not my fault. I didn't do this. Totally. You made me do it. Totally. That childlike... And when it shifts from almost in the beginning and especially in the film, that almost parental role of... You know, uh, naturally, you know, Paul is the child. He's helpless. He can't move. He's stuck in bed. And is the parent, the nurse looking after him. And then it reveals very quickly that shift, that that childlike um, and disturbed child that is Annie. Yeah. But yes, that that whole section with that first trooper that she kills, because he has that moment. The trooper has that moment of recognition. Yeah. Oh, oh God. It's you. Yeah. That's it. That's the last words that he ever speaks because Annie is then on top of him. And the fact that she uses that sit on lawnmower to <laughs> ride over his hand and then I think over the top of him and he kind of manages to crawl under the under the car. And also the fact that he's a he's a young cop. That's I don't it. Think he's that old. He's a young man. Yeah. More or less. 
um, that she's killed. And and in the book, that claustrophobia, because so much of the book takes place within the room or and within the house, and you get these little moments, don't you, of people fleetingly um, coming into the orbit of the Wilkes farm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the lawyer character coming in initially mm-hmm. and, and then quickly being told to, you know, get back in the car and head out. Then the cop and what happens there, then the two cops. and But you get these brief moments of people coming into the orbit. But for the most part, it is just the two of them in that claustrophobic, thick cloying environment which is very different very different from the film which for me lets in a lot more light by opening things up right from the beginning to outside the confines of the Wilkes house uh, the farmhouse yes I mean otherwise otherwise it becomes a very very difficult um, story to film yeah and I think Rob Reiner spoke to this a little bit um in the making of, which you can find on a copy of the DVD, should you have access to one, is that there had to be some way of getting out of the house. Um, you, can't, you couldn't keep everything in there between the two of them. You've got to find a break. You've got to find a, a release from the, from the confines one way or another. Um, although, e- equally, because it is, the book is so much of a two-hander, I've seen a stage production of it that is a two-hander more or less i don't remember it very well and it was quite quite a while ago but it does could lend itself quite well to the stage so the stephen king said annie was my drug problem she was my number one fan god she never wanted to leave misery is a book about cocaine and annie wilkes is cocaine What's your thoughts on that side, reading the book when, when you kind of know that that was one of the metaphors that, that, that King was really going for? It's another disturbing layer to, to the story. Um, and yeah, really quite terrifying because in that case, Annie becomes something that is not just external but internal it absolutely drives you and how it's your um because because of the thing about I, I think addiction at least one of the things about addiction is that you're either its master or its slave so you're either in control of it yeah which to a large extent i think means that you can function mm, yeah. because you know um i think you know stephen king has himself admitted he was a functioning yeah. addict um to a point but it's still there it's still driving you it still won't go away it's still something that has to be struggled with and it has to be mm. overcome um but it, 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 it doesn't go it doesn't give in without a fight and it finds yeah. all kinds of very clever um ways to to justify and to fight for its its existence and this is exactly exactly how Annie Annie behaves. She's the one who is in control, um, or seeming control. And in order to defeat her, Paul has to outsmart her. Yeah. Um, he has to, quite literally, I think, beat her um, at her own game, because he then does to to her what she does to him with fast cards. Mm. He um, 
you know, he 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 burns. I suppose in inverted commas in the in the book because it's not misery's return. He actually burns. Um, but he has to. I think he has to meet Annie on on her own playing field. And so, obviously, within the book, we have chapters and excerpts of mm. of the novels uh, and of Misery's Return. I, I will admit, when I got to those moments, I I could have done with a bit of pruning potentially on it. When when I got to that bit, I was like, oh, there was because there's one section where it goes on for a, a fair a fair while, mm-hmm. and I think it's purposely there to obviously put you right into that part of reading that book what is that like and it just slows the action down gives you a little breather keeps you just hanging on for when we plunge back into what's going to happen but i'd be lying if i said those were moments where i was tempted to skim over a little bit more to get back to the paul sheldon annie wilkes story well i think the misery books are the kind of stories that i would absolutely hate (laughs) they're not my they're not my cup of tea at all i mean you know if people enjoy these sort of um, tra- traditional sort of bodice ripping stories. Okay, fair play to it. There are some people that you know don't find Stephen King's writing at all engaging. Yeah. But th- those kind of I don't know, probably what are we seventeenth, eighteenth century? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> bonnet wearing, bodice ripping. No, I'm sorry, it's just it's just not my cup of tea. No, uh, I, I mean, look, you're not you're not averse to a bit of bodice ripping here and there and and sometimes no. you know you'll wear a bonnet as good as the rest of us but yeah, yeah but you don't want to read about it no if there's a paycheck involved fine, fine. Let's sit down and, and talk about <laughs> what the costume is and what i have to do and who i have to do it with but- so well that is, that is the actor's code right i mean look we've got morals we've got ethics we've got values you want to pay me how much okay fine yeah okay, sure fine, yeah all right yeah, i'll do that okay. yeah yeah. Nestle, yeah. McDonald's. Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got. A, I need a new swimming pool. I, I, I've got a tax bill to pay. Um, I want to go on holiday. Yeah, all right. I'll do that. <laughs> anyway, oh, brilliant. I, I thought of, um, I thought of the misery novels as good, high quality bad literature. Yes. Um, you know, well, well written, but not very good literature. Yeah. Overall, if I absolutely have to read one, then I suppose um, Stephen King is the person I would like to mm-hmm. to write. Yeah. But beyond beyond that, again, it sort of it tells you something about Annie. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that yeah. um, really lights her fire. Yeah, yeah, and I, it tells I, you something about Paul that he doesn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, I think that's it. It's it's the story that it tells about those two lead characters that it, it, that get, is really interesting about it. Yeah. yeah. There's something a bit sort of, you know, desperately twee for me about yeah. this relationship between Jeffrey and Ian and misery yeah. and Mrs. Ramage. And it's yeah. like, oh, I don't know. I'm sorry. No. And, and the predicament that Paul has to start to care again about these characters that he has gone, I am done with them. I want to write my masterpiece now, be taken seriously rather than write these these books. And of course, he has to go back and he has to not just fake it. He has to genuinely really care and really love about love them, because if he doesn't, then his one and only critic and reader is going to, uh, you know, have some very strong words and um, 
probably an axe involved to, to deliver that message. Yes, or an electric um, kitchen knife. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's on her time in the sense that, you know, we're not going anywhere till this is done. We can we can do this slow, or we can do it do yeah. do this quick. But either way, we're doing it. Yeah. Because nobody knows you're here. Yeah. Um. Nobody knows you're even. Nobody knows he's going to be missing. Yeah. For months, because the car doesn't turn up for quite some time. Well, that's the sense, isn't it? That obviously, you know, winter has thawed and spring is on its way, and, and Paul sees those glimpses, those green shoots of recovery and hope that things will get discovered. But of course. Annie being Annie, no, no, don't worry, I'll I'll deal with that. Yeah, who's going to sort that out? I'll sort that out. I'll go. Yeah, I'll go to my laughing place and then I'll come back. I'll get that sorted. Don't you worry. You're exactly where you need to be, and I need you to be right now. King Size was written and presented by Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Edited and produced by Matt Robinson. Music, Stormcoming by Last Picture Show, available on Spotify. Find us on Instagram at Podcast. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and subscribe to the show.